Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And a warm welcome to First Move, as always, this Wednesday. And an Ides of March feel this morning, with investors bearing the message, beware the banks particularly in Europe, where the financials are facing the heaviest of selling pressure, though U.S. banks are also being dragged down with them. Let me give you a look at the broad picture we're seeing. And uh, the message there is red. U.S. futures falling across the board. As you can see, the S&P 500 futures right now down almost 2 percent. Europe, though, seeing the sharpest pullback with just over 3 percent losses, as you can see for the majors there. A key trigger for today's fears, the fate of banking giant Credit Suisse shares currently down some 24% plus to yet another all-time low. This is top investor Saudi Arabia ruled out sinking any more money into the firm due to regulatory ownership constraints. Now, will the Swiss government now need to step in to provide emergency support? For now, they're saying no. We'll discuss all the details on this in just a moment's time. Here's a look at the broader price action for other European banks, though. And this is the key. BNP Paribas, Socgen over in France, Deutsche Bank, Commerzbank in Germany, all sharply down, as you can see. Some stocks in the euro region, in fact, halted in terms of trading just because of all the volatility and the pressure that we're seeing. I think this is a game. Investors questioning whether some of these banks could need to raise fresh capital amid the most aggressive global central bank rate hike cycle we've seen in decades. It all comes down to their government bond holdings once again. Interest rates go up, prices come down. That would then mean less lending. And that also has knock-on effects, negative growth and negative growth impact too. Now, as fate would have it, the European Central Bank has a rate decision tomorrow. And before last week, they were expected to hike around half a percent. Now, in terms of market pricing, we're currently looking at around half of that. What policymakers say, though, and what they do tomorrow is going to give us key insight into their policy path going forward amid severe market volatility at this moment. OK, let's take it to the US now. Shares of US banking majors are falling too. The regional banks are under a bit of pressure. You can see that there for the US majors. We saw strong gains for some of these regional bank stocks, though, yesterday. And this is an important point. Moody's, the rating agency, though, downgraded the entire US banking sector in uh, last evening, playing into today's weakness. The rating agency citing uncertainty over the damage of more rate hikes and what they could do in terms of potential economic slowdown. It's an important point. BlackRock's CEO also extremely bearish on the sector as well. He said he feared more bank seizures and shutdowns after the Fed's easy money unwinding. It's been a decade, of course, of easy money. Investors also digesting how the Fed will view the latest batch of important economic data. Just released numbers show prices at the factory gate falling unexpectedly last month. Retail sales also dropping unexpectedly too. Normally, We'd be sad about this, but I think we can hear a collective sigh of relief at the Federal Reserve as a result, some cooling in the data. Now, a wide range of projections on what the Fed will do at its meeting next week after all of this, whether to raise, whether to hold or perhaps even cut rates and all that too, fueling the uncertainty. Now, much to discuss. Anna Stewart joins us now. And Anna, you've been looking 
not only at Credit Suisse and the pressure that we're seeing specifically on that stock, which you and I, I think, agreed yesterday has been a slow motion car wreck now for some time, but the broader pressure that we're now seeing play into the European banking sector. Just walk us through that and tie it together. Yeah, what happened at Silicon Valley Bank had ramifications far beyond it and really even the banking sector in the US. It really has hit the shores of Europe and it hit it really hard even on Monday when we saw big price moves. And that's because the universal problem here is interest rates and where that leaves balance sheets for these big banks. People are now questioning what are on those balance sheets in terms of those long-dated government bonds? What are they worth? And what happens if banks are forced to sell and realize losses, as we saw with Silicon Valley Bank? So that's the kind of overall concern. And then you get to Credit Suisse today, which is a bank with its own issues. You can see the share prices there from the other European banks as well. But Credit Suisse at one stage down some over 20 percent, well over 20 percent, nearly at 30 percent today. And that was sparked for various things, you know, not just Silicon Valley Bank, but the comments we had yesterday on the report of weaknesses in financial reporting. And then today, as you mentioned earlier, the chairman of Saudi National Bank, this is the biggest shareholder in Credit Suisse, uh, kind of came to the rescue in some senses in the fundraising late last year. And the chairman was asked, will you increase your stake if needed in Credit Suisse? This was on Bloomberg. And he said the answer is absolutely Absolutely not for many reasons. And he said he would cite the most simple one, which is regulatory. We own 9.8% of the bank. They can't go above 10% for all kinds of reasons. That sparked this steep sell-off. He then spoke to Reuters later on just to say they are happy with the bank's transformation plan. He says he doesn't think they need any additional capital, but that hasn't really done much to calm nerves on this bank particularly. And this is just the latest, of course, and a whole series of mishaps for the bank. Uh, and I think people are concerned about outflows at Credit Suisse, but also really across the sector, looking at the share prices we're seeing today. Yeah, I mean, my, my read on this is, is perhaps less about the fear of whether your money's safe in these banks, but it's investors saying, hang on a second, if these banks have to start issuing shares to shore up, their stability and their capital position, then we're going to be diluted and they're taking mm. the valuations down as a result to reflect that. The question, Anna... Uh, and I'm glad it's you answering this, not me, is how does the ECB, how do regulators respond in this moment? Because they don't want to fuel some of the uncertainty and some of the panic, but they also want to say, look, we're, we're a steadying hand if, if the situation is needed and we're aware of some of the concerns. It's interesting, isn't it? Because SVB, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, directly impacted the US and the UK. So we saw regulators coming out and giving reassurance, showing they were quick to act. But of course, it only indirectly impacted Europe. So we haven't really heard anything from regulators. And you start to wonder, at what point could we hear something? Now, no news today from the Swiss National Bank that we have reached out to. Uh, A Reuters wire has crossed, though, citing Italy's economy minister, who says the Italian financial system is stable, um, very different, lots more rules to the US, he said. And he added, though, that vigilance is needed. Do central banks need to change course? You know, this is something we've been talking about all week, given, you know, the universal reason and the part of the problem is interest rates. The ECB will be the first test case. They meet tomorrow. They're they're likely to raise rates. The expectation is by half a percent. But the pressure is now on these central banks to consider financial stability as well as inflation. Julia? Yeah. But not send the message, too, that they're also spooked and therefore doing less because they still have to tackle inflation. Otherwise, um, we're looking at even bigger problems, I think, ahead. It's a tough one. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that.
Now, as Anna was saying, the European Central Bank meets tomorrow. The Federal Reserve announces their rate decision next week. Two major downside surprises in U.S. data today could affect Jerome Powell's interest rate path. That policy path already called into question, of course, by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the resulting volatility. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, I said at the beginning of the show... Um, I'm not quite sure what I would have said if some of the data that we got today, it was retail sales and producer price inflation had surprised to the upside. In fact, it was softer, which um, in this case and in the situation that we're facing today is a, a sort of collective sigh of relief, perhaps. How are the banks looking today in the US? Not so good, Julia. It seems mm. that Europe has sneezed and the US is now catching another cold. This has reignited fears around the banking sector, even though, as you say, these pieces of data produce a price index, which is a measure of wholesale uh, inflation. So further up the chain from what we got yesterday with uh, consumer prices, that, that came down, which, of course, slightly reduces the balancing act that the Fed has to deal with uh, next week. <coughs> Excuse me. We've seen as well Fed funds futures this morning, the momentum shifting away from the Fed, raising rates by a quarter percent. We were at about 80-20 uh, versus doing nothing before this. Now we're at about 55 for a quarter point rate rise. So it looks like people are, are perhaps looking at a less likelihood of that. The Fed might do nothing and, and, and you know, heed those calls to pause and see how their policies have been working so far. So, so that's what's happening. But we're seeing more pain in the U.S. markets when it comes to those banks, including those regional banks which have been so hard hit, buffeted by the strain and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank uh, and those other banks in the past week. We are also, Julia, uh, hearing signs that there may be regulatory implications for this, particularly for those mid-sized banks, the same size as Silicon Valley Bank and, of course, the likes of First Republic, which has been one of the ones where we've seen uh, big moves in the share price. There are reports that the Fed might be looking at tightening uh, that bit of Dodd-Frank that the Trump administration loosened in 2018. Essentially, what they did was raise the threshold uh, at which banks are going to be subject to, uh, to tighter regulation, things like stress tests and things like that. They raised it to $250 billion. That essentially took the likes of Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic out of the equation. It looks like there's some momentum uh, to change that now. Take a listen to what Lloyd Blankfein, of course, former CEO of Goldman Sachs, now senior chairman, had to say about this. I think at this point we recognize that a $250 billion bank is no small bank and you know perhaps a $50 billion bank is no small bank and even smaller ones so I think there's going to be regulation that normally applies to the biggest banks will probably be have to be extended and that regulation includes bigger stress tests having to have more capital and other features that uh, are gen generally make the system safer. So the Fed may look at this. Congress uh, says it will look at the reasons behind the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank uh, in the coming weeks. A lot of scrutiny on these banks and, of course, not just in the U.S., but around the world, Julian. Yeah, absolutely. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. Now, in the last few minutes, the U.S. Secretary of Defense said the downing of a U.S. spy drone in international airspace yesterday was part of a pattern of, quote, aggressive, risky and unsafe actions by Russia. Lloyd Austin's comments come one day after the Pentagon accused a Russian fighter jet of hitting an American spy drone's propeller, forcing it to crash into international waters. But Russia's ambassador to Washington is insisting the incident didn't happen and is warning the U.S. not to enter the airspace as the war rages in Ukraine. This drone can carry a few bombs. You see that what will be the reaction of United States if you see such Russian drone? very close, for example, to San Francisco or New York. 
what will, will be reaction of the United States? For me, it's clear. And Salma Abdelaziz joins us now on this. Salma, perhaps no surprise that there's a difference of opinion over what happened here, given the, the border backdrop. What do we know, firstly, about what happened, what more happened? What about the data on the drone and the, perhaps the communications behind the scenes here to avoid further escalation? Absolutely. So you have two very different narratives coming from Moscow in D.C. The United States says that Russia intentionally hit this drone, struck this drone. It says that Russian jets were in the vicinity of it, essentially harassing it between reading between the lines for 30 to 40 minutes, dumping fuel on that drone before that Russian fighter jet went behind that drone and clipped its propeller. The drone then, uh, that Reaper drone, being forced to crash to land into, not land, rather crash into the Black Sea, a total loss, U.S. officials say. But Moscow says this is simply not true. They deny that there was any physical contact between one of their fighter jets and this U.S.-made drone. Russia says, in fact, that it... uh detected an intruder over the Black Sea waters. It scrambled its fighter jets. That that drone, the U.S.-made drone, did not have its transponders on, which Russia says is a violation of international standards and norms. In fact, Russia says it had warned that it was operating in the area, that it was carrying out, quote, its special military operations in that Black Sea area and had warned uh, about that action and, in fact, blames the United States, points its fingers at the U.S., says it's America that was behaving recklessly, dangerously uh, in the Black Sea. One Kremlin spokesman saying that relationships between Russia and the United, United States are deplorable now, that they're at an all-time low. Now, one positive sign is that both sides seem to agree that this should not escalate any further. Russia's ambassador to D.C., to the United States, was summoned. There was a, about a 30-minute meeting there in the State Department. He called it constructive. So for now, it seems that neither party wants to see this escalate. But all eyes on the Black Sea as to whether or not the Americans can somehow, and it's impossible to imagine that this could take place, could somehow get the remnants of that drone from the Black Sea. But important to note, of course, Russia very much operates in that flash point area of the Black Sea. Mm. Sam Abdelaziz, thank you for joining us. Okay, straight ahead, as the dust settles from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, one fintech firm right at the heart of this says it's time for startups to rethink how they manage money. The founder of Brex joins us after this. Welcome back to First Move. My next guest aims to be a one-stop financial shop for startups and small businesses. Fintech firm Brex offers a deposit account, a corporate credit card, lines of credit, as well as things like expense management tools. Now, since its launch back in 2017, it's taken on over 20,000 clients from startups to well-known brands such as Airbnb and DoorDash. Now, after the sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Brex was inundated with calls from businesses for immediate credit lines to help them pay things like wages. Fortunately, of course, they weren't required after the U.S. government stepped in. But the Brex founder says the fall of Silicon Valley Bank is a pivotal moment for the industry. Joining us now is Enrique Dubagres. He's the founder and co-CEO of Brex. Enrique, great to have you back on the show. Um, I can only imagine what kind of weekend uh, and weak, quite frankly, you've had. The good news is, in the end, the support that you were frantically trying to find wasn't required. But what was your key takeaway from this experience? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I think that key takeaway from this experience is that all of us need to pay a lot more attention to our banking setup as businesses, as individuals, and 
having uh, redundancy and diversification is important, not only for the financial risk, because in the end, the government stepped in, but also for the operational piece of it, right? Maybe the government took a few extra days to step in, and that would have been, you know, a mess for payroll. So I think that learning more about how the banking system works, what is safe, what is less safe, I think it's something that's super important. Uh, I couldn't agree more with you on that mismatch of timing, because even if you had less than $250,000 in an account for a period there, you couldn't access that money. And, and that could be a huge challenge for, for families and for individuals. Um, you manage deposits. How do you manage yours? And what proportion of those are above the $250,000? And how do you manage that risk, that insurance risk? Absolutely. So Brex, we are not a bank. Um, so therefore, we don't offer bank accounts. We offer cash manager brokerage accounts, which means that um, we get your deposits and we sweep them into smaller banks in 250K increments. So you can get up to 2.25 million in FDIC insurance and the rest of it, we sweep to money market funds. And I think that's very important, the distinction between a bank and a brokerage account. Because a bank, you're giving the bank the right to invest their money however they and their regulators believe is right, right? They're making loans, they're investing in treasuries. That's what Silicon Valley Bank ended up doing. With a brokerage or a cash account, you are deciding how to take that risk. You are deciding to buy, in our case, money market funds of short duration. So, and you own the underlying securities. And even in the SVB case, you would have seen that all the money that was FDIC insurance was going to be paid in full on Monday. And everything that was money market on the asset management side, like I was saying, that was off balance sheet that we called, also was going to get paid out in full and pretty quickly. So um, I think that this is an evolution where consumers and businesses need to understand whenever they're giving a money to a bank, what does that entail, right? Entail that they're giving them the right to lend their money out. And it may be okay, right? Like you may want that. Um, but it's also important to know that there are other options such as brokerage accounts, right? Brex is one of them, but Fidelity, Schwab, or a few of these other brand names have the same setup. So this is, just so my audience understands, this is very important because what you were doing with this money, you were breaking it down so that it was in different accounts that were insurance protected, but you were also keeping some of that money in very short-term um, interest rate products, not the longer term that Silicon Valley Bank had and had all that interest rate sensitivity. It's very, very important. Um, the problem with what you just said is it sort of suggests to people, and I think this is perhaps the danger, that we see more deposits consolidated in some of the biggest banks in the country. And actually, this works less well for customers of all kinds, the more. How do we avoid that, Enrique? Because I do think that's the danger. We push to very small banks or we push to very big banks and the ones in the middle are sort of caught. That's a, a great point and an excellent point. And I think that the outcome that um, consumers and businesses don't trust mid-sized and small banks and it all concentrates in a large banks is terrible for America. Mid-sized and small banks are incredibly important because they deeply understand the needs of the customers in their segment or their communities, right? Silicon Valley Bank deeply understood and still understands the needs of startups, technology companies, wineries. That is their focus. And therefore, they provide a lot better service to those customers and create products that are tailored to the needs of those customers. While some of the big banks, they're focused on uh, the wide uh, array of people, right? What is the average person or the average business. And sometimes businesses need more care and tailored towards it. 
That's why I think it was so important that the government stepped in, because if we stop believing that our money is safe in midsize and small banks, that is terrible for the America's banking system and it's terrible for consumers. Yeah. And I'll just overlay that with the idea of more regulation for them, too. So they're sort of mummified in red tape, which in some areas is good because people will feel protected. But it's just more work and it takes them away from the core business of lending to to people, too. Um, One of the things that I remember from our first conversation was that you initially were sort of focused on very small businesses or startups. And you would assume around a 60, 65 percent failure rate of those businesses. And it meant you had to be incredibly careful with credit um, and interest rate risk for these individuals. It was dynamic assessment of the health of these individuals. To go back again to our point about, I think, how regulation has to change as a result of what we've seen. Would your advice be, and I don't know how they go about it, but more dynamic modelling of the risks in these banks? Because people like you are doing it. The private sector's doing it. Regulators have to be aware of it and doing it too. Yeah. So, um, you know, just to be super clear, um, Brex, we uh, serve technology startups, right? That is kind of like our focus on the small side. And we serve them with our card and banking products. But we, we serve all sorts of mid-market and enterprise companies that are much larger in size with thousands of employees with our spend management, corporate card products as well. And I would say that's, you know, a lot of our core business today is the technology startups, which we're specialists in on the small side. And, you know, all kinds of companies of all sectors and industries across the midsize and larger companies. And I think what you're saying around the dynamic risk modeling is incredibly important. One thing that we do at Brex is instead of evaluating risk um, on a static basis where you give us your documents once and we evaluate the risk and that's it, we're constantly monitoring and we're using technology to basically get more data from you all the time and constantly reevaluate the credit based on that. And that's why, you know, when I hear people say we need more regulation, I say it's not more regulation, it's better regulation. It's it's pushing banks and pushing financial institutions to get out of how they did things 20, 30 years ago and adapt to 2023 and have more modern systems, more modern capabilities so they can assess risk in a more dynamic way. I don't think we need more bureaucracy in banks. We have plenty of that already. What we need is them to modernize and use the technology that we have today to make better risk and financial decisions. Yeah. Enrique, teaser for our next conversation. Will this be good for you? I would say um, it's still in flight. Um, You know, the outcome that you described at everyone only trusts the big banks is terrible for us, right? Uh, Obviously, we're not one of the systemically important banks. But um, on the other hand, you know, I think it did give us an opportunity uh, to show to our customers how how fast we can move uh, in terms of providing them the credit lines that we did. And I think that was, you know, very positive for our community and our brand. Um, But I think is Silicon Valley Bank in general going uh, bankrupt is bad for our entire industry. It's bad for us. It's bad for technology. It's bad for the U.S. So I'm glad the government stepped in. Yeah. And and these kind of things need to be prevented, however that happens in the future. Enrique, great to chat to you. We'll talk more about your business the next time you're on. Um, Thank you for your wisdom on what we've seen there. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Welcome back to First Move, and we're counting down to the stock market home open here in the United States. Futures continuing to point to a weaker open, though, as you can see in front of you. And we're also, of course, keeping an eye on the global banking sector, really. European markets continue to face pressure all down by around three, if not three and a half percent over. You can see there for Paris. Credit Suisse, too, back in the firing line. Again, shares tumbling more than 20 percent after its biggest backer appeared to rule out providing further capital. We know that, of course, Saudi Arabia saying that it can't break that 10 percent ownership limit due to regulatory rules. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, you and I were talking earlier on in the show. What we're seeing here is investors' concerns about the holdings, really, of safe assets like government bonds. They're, at least on paper, loss in value as interest rates around the world have risen. And to what degree, perhaps, some of these banks are going to have to shore up their position by raising, raising cash, issuing shares? Yeah, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around this at the moment. Look, we've got two separate issues right on each side of the Atlantic. Silicon Valley Bank had its own specific issues in the U.S. Credit Suisse uh, also has been, you know, in the spotlight, not for the right reasons for a long time. Uh, But both of them involved elements of mismanagement internally that will invite scrutiny of other banks. And as you say, the big macro issue that all these banks are facing is this climate of rising interest rates. Yes, we got some data today that may slightly reduce the uh, the impact of that in the short term. We may see lower uh, or no interest rate rises from the ECB and the Fed uh, in the coming days after this data that we got this morning, particularly uh, in the US. But this is still something that they are going to grapple with regardless of what happens at these upcoming meetings. And Silicon Valley Bank in particular has raised the specter that some in particular smaller banks' balance sheets may not be ready for this, may not uh, have enough interest rate hedges built in uh, to to weather uh, this, frankly, sea change in the macroeconomic environment. So I think that is what we're seeing play out today. These bank stocks in the U.S. pre-market in particular getting hit. We'll see how they open. Yeah, and that's the balance, the delicate balancing act that they've got to find here. We're still concerned about the inflationary outlook. Inflation Mm -hmm. is still above targets for these central banks, but it's how much more of a squeeze really can they put on the financial sector by increasing interest rates to try and get inflation under control in the face of of some of the uncertainty. Claire, again, the the conversation we're going to hear from the European Central Bank tomorrow, it's going to be interesting to see what Christine Lagarde says about stability, about the capital positions of the banking sector broadly in Europe and whether they try and assuage fears and say, look, we've still got a job to do here and we think that the system can cope with us hiking by a further a quarter of a percentage point. I think they also have to be very careful with their messaging not to also appear to be taking fright, but be on top of some of the concerns and issues and understanding them. Yeah, you know, communication balancing act as well. I think in Europe, uh, certainly the banks are seen to be uh, in a slightly stronger position, Credit Suisse notwithstanding, uh, to the United States. They don't have as much a sort of long-term government debt, long-term securities on their balance sheet bought before the current rise in interest rates, so potentially facing on paper losses on those. That is something that Moody's uh, has pointed out in the last few days. Moody's, of course, having downgraded the outlook of the entire U.S. banking sector because of their concerns about how rising interest rates could affect their balance sheet. So Europe... Look, it, it, it may have its banks in a stronger position, but that doesn't mean that inflation uh, is not as much of a concern there. And it is 
so far off target, both in the US and in the UK, that the central banks have their own reputations at stake, frankly, if they don't tackle this. Having said that, one of the issues around uh, this banking crisis, particularly in the US, is that it could end up doing some of the tightening for the central bank. It could cause banks to recoil a little bit uh, from lending and in doing that to, to, to cause some kind of a slowdown themselves. So this is something that the central banks will also have to factor in uh, as they plot this next path of rate rises. That's such a great point. And as I look across the movements that we're seeing in, in financial markets today, you've got oil under pressure. You've got all the signs of slower growth concern coming in. And I guess the only sort of counterpoint that you would make to, to what you were saying about the difference between the United States and, and Europe, two weeks ago in the United States, we were talking about how unfortunately resilient the data is in the United States and the economy is being. And that's what's causing part of the problem for the Federal Reserve. In Europe, there were greater concerns about slowdown. And this, of course, the fear that banks will lend less, uh, tighter financial conditions could exacerbate that slowdown still with inflation and the ECB having to raise rates. And I think that's also playing into the reaction that we're seeing. Yeah, we're just showing you oil there. I mean, that's classic growth mm. outlook concern. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. Look, Europe, uh, through all of this, much more exposed to the inflationary forces from the war right. in Ukraine uh, as well. Don't forget, that is something uh, that is still playing out. So this all part of the balancing act that the ECB is facing, I think, Look, this is clearly a point at which we've seen the tide come out when it comes to this climate of rising interest rates. And the markets are now scrutinizing very closely who might have been left exposed, essentially, who hasn't been preparing uh, and, and who, you know, they might need to get their money out of fairly quickly. This is the problem when you have this kind of self-perpetuating fear in the markets that has been reignited today by Credit Suisse, despite the fact that, you know, as one uh, hedge fund uh, manager in the US just just messaged me, you would you should you had to be living under a rock not to realize that there were problems with Credit Suisse. So it shouldn't come as a shock. But there's such a jittery mood on the market that I think we've seen that these incidents can reignite these fears. And that's what we're seeing playing out today. I think the phrase there, the tide going out, was the most important one. Larry Fink, BlackRock CEO, in his note, talking about this being the price you pay for a decade of zero interest rates and quantitative easing and support for the system. And when that gets pulled back, to your point, the tide goes out. And um, as one trader once told me, you see who's forgotten their swimming trunks. And this is what we're seeing, potentially. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right. And about turn now, Africa's aviation sector must consolidate to ensure its long-term viability. That's according to the CEO of Kenya Airways, Alan Kilavuka, who recently spoke with Connecting Africa's Eleni Jokos about potential growth opportunities. Alan, great to see you. The continental free trade area creating so much excitement, but it's all about implementation. Yeah. How are you guys pricing the potential of growth. The estimate is that trade is going to increase by about 52%, okay, particularly goods, uh, moving of goods from one place to another. And so is the economies of the people going to move. Now, part of the problem is even access uh, in terms of allowing people to move into, into countries. So you're expected to have visas to begin with. So one of the things we need to do is to free up the movement of people and then together with the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, which allows access, so it eliminates tariffs uh, and other non-tariff barriers, then it allows for more trade to happen. From there on, we need to partner with the traders, 
and the tourists so that we uh, provide the logistics for moving both people and goods into and out of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. You're looking to work even closer with South African Airways, for example. Um, you're looking for new code share opportunities as well. Could you take me through that strategy um, in terms of working with other airlines and what that could mean for you? We have a bigger vision, though. So the Africa market, the African aviation market, is very fragmented. You have so many, I mean, 55 countries, we have so many airlines in the, in the continent. Most of them are not viable, that truth be told. The solution to that is to consolidate, right? Just like that has happened in Europe, it happened in the, in the US, happened in Asia. We need to consolidate so that you create bigger entities which are more economical from a scale perspective. And they can respond to um, high costs. Um, they can, you know, together talk to suppliers and get more bargains when it comes to purchases. So bring down the unit cost of operation. In addition, uh, because of scale, they can then open up the African continent a lot more. So you're talking consolidation basically yes. in the industry. So that is a discussion we've been having with South African Airways. Mm. How do we consolidate? And not just South African Airways, it's African countries as well. So my agenda as a person, and we as an airline, is really how do we make aviation more viable in Africa? One way of doing it, and I'm completely convinced, is you have to consolidate the industry. The fragmented state at which we are in is not going to make it. Welcome back to First Move. Whether it's up in the air or down on the racetrack, Goodyear is one of those brands we all grew up with and recognised. And as it marks its 125th anniversary this year, the tyre giant also faces some headwinds, ordering $5 million worth of cost savings with a 5% cut in its workforce. And like the rest of the industry, it's responding to pressure to become more sustainable too. It's estimated every year 1 billion tyres reach the stage of wearout, and there are around 4 billion tyres in landfills and stockpiles worldwide. The company is aiming to make the world's first tyre made from 100% sustainable materials by 2030, and this 90% demonstration tyre is made up of soybean oil, rice husks and pine resin. Yes, you heard me correctly. And Richard Kramer is Chairman, CEO and President of Goodyear. And he joins me now. Richard, fantastic to have you on the show. We definitely have to talk about sustainability. But I, you, like many other CEOs, are juggling so many things in terms of the economy, input prices, more con cautious consumer. And, and you're all over the world. But I know Europe in particular... Um, has been slower than you expected. Just talk me through what you're seeing and thinking at this moment. Well, thanks, Julia, and, and glad, glad to be here today and, and look forward to talking about our sustainable tire. But you're absolutely right, characterizing the world as you did. And, you know, I would tell you, coming out of 2022, we made significant progress in a really challenging environment. And as you said, that challenging environment is continuing, particularly in the first half and that's really driven by lower demand in the industry, as well as continued inflation that, that you've been talking about earlier today as well. And I think those trends are, are really still around right now. They're manifesting themselves in lower industries and in our mature markets in the U.S. and Europe uh, during the first quarter here. Actually, we are seeing some, uh, some upbeat uh, numbers in China, as you would expect, as the post-COVID recovery comes forward. But uh, again, I would tell you, inflation is still sticking around, particularly in our input costs. Wage rates continue to go up. And on a year-over-year -year basis, 
the industry is is down in the first quarter again in U.S. and Europe. But that's just as we anticipated. We're certainly managing our business with that in mind. We're well positioned for when the industry does turn around. And we do think it will sequentially get better as we get back to the second half of the year. Ah, and you still think that, do you? It's interesting because what what now leaps out at me in that conversation is exactly what you were saying, the, the challenges of managing the inflationary pressure, the, the wage pressure. And again, if this conversation would have been had two weeks ago, we would have really focused on that. Obviously, things feel like they've changed somewhat in the last few days. Richard, I'm sure you've been watching all the headlines with, with some of the pressure that we've seen on the banking sector, the, the steps that the regulators have, have taken in order to, to shore that up. Does that change your calculus? And I know it's everybody's digesting what this means ultimately, but digesting your calculus over perhaps what the Federal Reserve can do to tame inflation, because all of these things play into your decision making for the short term and the long term. Well, you're you're absolutely right. And and as you said, a week ago, the world looked a little bit different. But we continue to monitor trends of the consumer. We still see vehicle miles traveled going up. We still see pent up demand for at least some traveling in the United States. So, you know, there are signs that people still want to get out and still will be using our products. That's also true particularly in the uh, in the trucking industry where we're very well positioned at the higher end with some of the leading fleets out there. So there's some positives out there as well. But you're absolutely right. I think we have to look at this and look at the consumer and what inflation or what uh, the economy is doing to the consumer. We do that uh, regularly. We've done that for a long period of time. We know how to manage through these situations. Julie, I will tell you, we look at this and say, number one, we focus on the customer. Number two, we focused on collectively cost and cash. And number three, you know, we continue to invest in some of our future programs like the sustainable tire. And we do that certainly with some investment dollars, but also with resources that we've sort of directed in the company to go after those trends that we know are coming. And uh, we do feel we have a leading position and we're not going to let the economy uh, get in the way of that. We'll manage no. through it. As you said, we're 125 years old. We know how to do this. <laughs> I was about to say, you, you, the company's <laughs> certainly seen some, some highs and lows through that period in particular. One more quick question on this, and then I Amen. want to move on. J- just in terms of what we're seeing, has it made you, as a, as a CEO, sort of want to give advice on where the, the, the business's money is kept, where perhaps suppliers' money is kept? Or is it just about a reassuring hand and saying, look, to your point, we've been around a long time, we've seen a lot of things, Panic is not the answer here. Well, I, I do think panic is not the answer. And having worked through, you know, the, 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 the great financial crisis uh, and also with a, a great focus on our balance sheet, we always are, are, are looking after our liquidity position, looking after uh, where our debt maturities are and managing that very proactively. So certainly that is in our mind all the time. And, uh, and that helps us manage through situations like this. And in terms of, uh, uh, you know, other uh, constituents that we deal with, we always uh, as well keep track of where we are and any risks that we might see. So I, I do think that, uh, you know, this is a, a unique situation. I'm certainly not the expert to speak on banking or, or you know, the, uh, the areas of what the Fed's going to do. But uh, uh, we also know that the, the financial system has taken a lot of steps in the past to, uh, to reassure itself. And, and, uh, and hopefully those are going to show themselves during this time. 
Yeah, but it's good to get a guiding hand like yours voice on it too. So I appreciate your um, your response on that. All right, let's talk about sustainable innovation as well, because um, what you announced at, at CES back in January did caught my catch my attention. Um, and it was a 90% sustainable material tyre. And I, I mentioned the um, the inputs to this, let's call them that, um, earlier on in the show, soybean oil and, and rice husks. I think the first question to be, to be asked here is, um, do they improve? or at least maintain the performance of a tyre? I saw read something that actually soybean oil makes the tyre more pliable in cold conditions. Kind of fascinating how you can tinker with the uh, ingredients, let's call them that, and actually improve the performance, perhaps. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to all the, the hardworking people at Goodyear and the, the suppliers we work with to help us develop those materials to do exactly what you just said, to actually improve performance. With the, the tire that we have uh, uh, that's made out of 90% sustainable materials, I, I will tell you that from a performance perspective, that tire meets all uh, regulatory safety requirements, all our internal safety requirements. It performs better on rolling resistance, if you will, fuel mileage than the reference tire we made it against. And we've given up nothing on safety and performance, obviously safety being number one. And as you said, some of the materials like uh, soybean oil actually give us better traction in, uh, in colder snow environments. So a long way to say that uh, safety and performance have not been sacrificed in the interest of improved sustainability. How does it perform in terms of cost, Richard? How much more does it cost to produce no. these? And who, because I know you have a 70% one now, who buys these first, particularly, as we've said, in a sort of more conscious consumer cost environment? Well, you know, Julie, you're absolutely right. The, the, the cost of the tire right now, we don't go, we wouldn't go through all the particular costs of what it, it does to make that tire. But, but right now, I would have you think of the cost in the context of making uh, the supply chain available and the material lineups available in enough quantities to be able to bring the cost down. That doesn't really exist today, which by yeah. definition might mean that the cost of the tire is a higher cost right now, but, but that's okay. We're on the front end of something. We're trying to lead that as we go through these, these uh, changes in mobilities. We refer to them as, as faces, fleets, autonomous, connected, electric, and sustainable vehicles. We are part of that. It plays very well to our strengths and to our, our goal of enabling mobility today and tomorrow. And so the cost is certainly one thing, but we know that will come down as the, uh, as the materials become available. And, uh, and in the meantime, we are selling a 70% sustainable tire online in the United States. And we're doing that as a means to get feedback from, uh, from consumers as well. But think of that as the front end of, of where we're going with this. Absolutely. Look at electric car uh, batteries. The price came down and down and down. It just um, doesn't mean you don't do the innovation in the first place. Um, Richard, exactly. good to chat to you. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll continue our conversation, no doubt, soon. Thank you, sir, once again, thank, for, for answering all the thank questions. Welcome back to First Move with another check of what we're seeing across global markets now. U.S. stocks still weaker across the board, a little off the session lows. Europe also weaker, as you can see, though, early on in the session, if you remember, we were down by around some 3%. So we are off the lows there, too. As we've been discussing all our market sentiment, taking a pretty big hit from a fresh drop in European bank shares triggered by concerns over the health of Credit Suisse. Saudi Arabia saying it's unable 
to increase its stake in the troubled firm due to regulatory constrictions, restrictions. Here's a look at where Credit Suisse shares are trading in the United States, as well as the price action across US-listed Deutsche Bank and UBS. Just to give you a sense there, banks in the United States also under pressure once again as well. Regional bank First Republic down sharply after a rally on Tuesday. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, this is what volatility looks like. And uh, this is what it looks like, I think, when investors are looking at the banks and going, what are they holding and are they going to have to raise capital to shore up their positions? Absolutely. And and look, and this is also shows you sort of how the fear can spread from Europe to the U.S. I mean, this I, I really think yesterday you had some stability in the in the regional banks and in the overall banks here in the U.S. And then this Credit Suisse um, problem in Europe and just malaise in general about what could be under the hood of the banking sector um, is, is sort of feeding the feeding the trade or driving the trade here today. Um, you also have this um, letter to shareholders from Larry Fink from BlackRock, which I'm sure you've mentioned basically talking about, you know, the consequences of zero rates, so many years of zero rates, and now with new regulations and with sort of looking at at, at balance sheets and and how things fare under sharply higher higher interest rate scenario, you you just have to wonder what's out there. So uh, a concern generally that the banking sector will remain under pressure in the near term as Moody's Investor Services has already warned the entire banking system could be remain under pressure. There could be, you know, more bankruptcies and consequences in different corners of banking overall. But that in the U.S. at least, this is not 2008. This is not the great financial crisis. This is a solid economy and underlying, you know, stability in the banking system overall. You're just seeing the fallout from a year of now higher interest rates. Yeah. And higher interest rates done over an incredibly short period of time after a decade of zero interest rates and easy monetary policy. I did see what Larry Fink said, and I thought it was very interesting. The price we're paying for decades of of easy money. And you and I have been saying for a year there were going to be digestion issues. And as you see some of this money pull away now and people be a little bit more cautious about what they're doing, um, certain things are being exposed, be they concerns at FTX and now concerns about what's under the hood, to use your terminology, um, at the banks. We have about 30 seconds left. Christine, do you think the US banks would be down today if Europe weren't down? I don't know. I think they might have stabilized if Europe yeah, were down. I think I, the, uh, there, I think there's fear and there's fundamentals. And yeah. I think yesterday we were looking at fundamentals again, and today we're looking at fear. That, that would be my takeaway. And you agree? I would, as always, Christine Romans. <laughs> I should ask you with a negative rather than a positive. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you on. Thank Bye-bye. you. Christine Romans there. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.